Our scripture reading comes to us and is Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your own beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. May God add his blessing to this, his word. You may be seated. Before we look into God's word, please join me in a word of prayer. Oh God, I pray that you would take your word this day, that it would work within us to mold us and make us more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, that perfect image bearer. In his precious name we pray, amen. Well, last time I preached, we looked at Psalm 3, which has been understood to be a morning psalm. That is one that's looked at or recited by the Jews in the mornings. We ask ourselves, how do we face our foes? As David and the Lord Jesus did in looking in faith to God to overcome them, or do we cower in fear before them? Today we continue our study, our journey through the book of Psalms by looking at Psalm 4, which has been understood to be an evening psalm, a psalm looked to and recited by the Jews as an element of evening worship. It's also considered a psalm of lament, as our pastor Nick mentioned this morning in Sunday school class. As we've seen when we were considering Psalms 1, 2, and 3 to this point, there were points of contact back to the previous Psalms, and today we'll also see several points of contact back from this Psalm back to Psalm 1, 2, and 3. So, boys and girls, do you remember times when you were afraid to go to sleep and your mommy or your daddy sang you a nursery rhyme or a lullaby, and then you were able to go to sleep? Young parents, maybe you are like we were with our young daughters and our husbands, our daughters and son-in-laws are with their young children, and that singing a song or a hymn is a natural part of the daily bedtime routine. Parents and grandparents, I'm sure you remember singing to your children and grandchildren soothing songs to help them get to sleep. Well, reading this psalm made me think that this is David's lullaby, as it were, that he sang to himself when he was in distress and maybe fearful of going to sleep. I would ask you, children, teens, and adults here today, when circumstances of past wrongs or present problems in your lives coursing around in your mind seemingly endlessly cause you to have trouble calming down enough to go to sleep, what comforting songs, hymns, or words do you call to mind and dwell on to help bring that calm that will allow you to drift off to sleep. 
As we consider Psalm 4 this morning and look at what David, King David turned his mind to in these times, I want us to consider what do we do? Do we continue to be agitated by our anxious thoughts and so experience sleepless nights of insomnia? Or do we follow the example of King David and turn our thoughts to our faithful God, to his words, and to his works? So let's begin looking at the text with verse 1 we see, God's faithfulness remembered. In verse 1 we read, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Here we see the psalmist David, as we saw him in Psalm 3, in deep distress. We will see as we continue through the psalm that this distress is of a different nature than it was in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 addressed physical danger. Here in Psalm 4 we see attacks seem to be personal slander, dragging his name through the mud, questioning his integrity. Not immediately life-threatening, but nonetheless pressing in hard upon him. And where does he turn for relief in his distress? Inwardly, Inwardly to himself to just pull himself up by the bootstraps or be a man? Or does he vindicate himself or get even? Or does he turn to others in his sphere of influence or acquaintances? No. We see that with his very first words and thoughts, he turns where? To the only real means and source of help in times of distress. In prayer to his almighty sovereign God. The God of his righteousness or his righteous covenant-keeping God. He's asking God to act according to his righteous character toward him. The chosen king, as we saw when we looked at Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, and a covenant child. The phrase, you have given me relief when I was in distress, if more literally rendered, would read, in a tight place, you made it broad for me. David's feeling hemmed in or in straits or constrained by his enemies pressing in on him, and he's in a tight spot. That is the sense of the word distress or trouble. As such, he's asking his righteous God to give him relief, which has a sense of giving him space or room or broadening his way. In the Hebrew, there is a lexical connection between the word for distress or tight places here and the adversary or enemies that we saw in Psalm 3.1. So this is our first contact back to connection back to Psalm 3. In our psalm today, David remembers back to how his faithful God gave him relief or broadened his way from his enemies in the past that gives him humble boldness to call on the same gracious God to do the same in his present circumstance. He recalls the Aaronic blessing that Yahweh gave to Moses concerning the people of Israel. We read this in Numbers 6, 22-27. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This is So David is praying for one of the elements of this blessing to be upon him, his graciousness. That's what David asks for here. He calls on his God to hear his prayer. We're familiar with this word from Deuteronomy 6.4, the Jewish Shema. is a call not only to hear what the psalmist is saying when he cries out, but the idea is 
in hearing then to act. David is calling on his God to hear and take gracious action on his behalf. The approach of David when in distress as described in this psalm is the practice of the Lord Jesus Christ while here on this earth as well. We read in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In our Lord's suffering, he entrusted himself to his gracious Father, whom he knew to be faithful to judge justly. How about for us? Is this our practice when we find ourselves in distress or under attack to first go to our God in prayer, remembering his past faithfulness in our lives and trusting in him to be faithful as well in our current circumstance? May we strive to make it so. It will save us from much needless anxiety and fretting. Moving on to verses 2 and 3, we see God's faithfulness rehearsed. Beginning with verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How, will you love, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. In this verse, we see the psalmist addresses those who are the reason for his distress and what his distress entails. What we have translated as O men in the ESV is literally sons of man, which is the he- in the Hebrew refers to the class of prominent citizens in Israel. These are the landowners, the wealthy, the powerful in leadership positions in a society. The leadership has taken a wrong path, and David calls their attention to their error by asking them two what should be piercing rhetorical questions. First, he asks, how long will you continue to insult or turn to shame his honor? We know from our studies of Psalm 2 and 3 that this is twofold. From Psalm 2, we know that in turning his honor into shame, they are despising Yahweh's anointed king and the glory, the honor, the weightiness, the kavod given to him by Yahweh. We see this in Psalm 2, 6, where we read, As for me, God speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And from Psalm 3, 3, which reads, But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head, this is David speaking about his God, we see that these men are treating Yahweh himself, who is the psalmist's glory, as a reproach. Do you think either of these will go over well with the all-glorious God of the universe? Obviously not. His second question to these sons of man is, how long will you continue to love vain words and seek after lies? In this question, we also have ties back to Psalms 2 and 3. It seems that his foes are committed to their vain plots that we read of in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. As well as the lies voiced in Psalm 3, 2, where we saw... Many are saying on my soul, there is no salvation for God, for him and God. In addition to these, it could be that David has been accused of some crime or sin, and even though he knows that he is innocent, 
the accusations and reproach weigh heavily upon him. The Psalm's not the only place we read of David being in these kind of straits. Psalm 64, 1 through 5 reads, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? Obviously, being the Lord's anointed uh, did not mean that David had no problems or enemies. One commentator aptly summed up the thinking and acting of these sons of man, such as the enemies of David, described in these verses as follows. Quote, For those who have rejected Yahweh and his moral authority, the commands and prohibitions, promises and prescriptions of the Lord are worthy only of scorn. They mock the existence of God, suggest that those who believe what he says are harming others, and do all that they can to make everyone regard their wicked immorality as righteous and good behavior. Let's listen to that again. For those who have rejected Yahweh and his moral authority, his commands and provisions, prohibits, prohibitions, his promises and prescriptions, to them the Lord is worthy only of scorn. They mock the existence of God, suggesting that those who believe what God says are actually harming others, harmful to society, and do all they can to make everyone regard their wicked immorality as righteous good behavior. Doesn't this sound eerily like what we who are in Christ face today in our society? <laughs> Saying from Ecclesiastes certainly rings true that there is nothing new under the sun. How do we respond when being mocked and shamed or lied about? May we see and follow David's example as we continue working through this psalm. In verse 3, we read, But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call him. In response to the attacks of his enemies in verse 2, David rehearses God's past faithfulness to him from remembering the promises given to him by God in Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9, where we read, As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. I will tell the decree, Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And he remembers how his God had delivered him from his, the enemy seeking his life, what we saw when we looked at Psalm 3. David tells his enemies to know, to recognize, to be aware of the fact that Yahweh, the covenant God, has set apart the godly for himself. He knows that man and his way intimately and has determined good for him. We saw this in Psalm 1-6 in regard to the, uh, the righteous man. The word for set apart here means to mark something or someone from different from something or someone, to deal differently with something or someone. It's the same word that we have seen as Pastor Nick has been working through his way through Exodus, used in reference to three of the plagues, the flies, the death of the livestock, and the death of the firstborn, where we read that Yahweh made a distinction between the Egyptians and between the Israelites. The Egyptians suffered these plagues. The Israelites did not. They were set apart. 
The term godly man in this verse, or faithful one in some translations, refers to a singular or particular person who is a recipient of Yahweh's unchanging covenant love and who in turn demonstrates covenant love and loyalty back to God and in obedience to God and in showing love to his people. This is what we see spoken of in 2 Timothy 2.19 where we read, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So based on the promises that Yahweh has made to him, the fact of Yahweh's love for him and his love and obedience to Yahweh, David counts himself as one of the godly ones and therefore one whom Yahweh hears when he calls to him. As we've seen before in our psalm studies, the word here, again, has the sense of hearing with the intent to act. David's confident that God hears him and will act on his behalf. How is it with us? Are we recipients of God's covenantal love and living in covenant relationship with him by returning his love, loving others, and obeying his commands? If so, no matter what the world may think of or say about us, we can take comfort and courage in knowing that our God hears us when we call to him and that he acts on our behalf. We are distinct and set apart from those outside of Christ in that we derive our joy and our identity as being in Christ and that cannot be shamed away from us by the world. May we be able to live with confidence. Moving on to verses 4 and 5, we see how to become a recipient of God's faithfulness. In these two verses, David instructs his enemies first on what they need to change in their behavior, and second, how they too can be recipients of the faithfulness of God that he enjoys and is confident in. In verse 4, we read, Be angry and do not sin. Pardon in your own hearts on your, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. In this verse, David issues to his detractors a call for repentance. What the ESV translates as be angry is translated by other translations such as the NESB, the NET, and the NIV as tremble. And this fits more closely with the meaning of the Hebrew verb here, ragaz, having the sense of to tremble or shake, to be disturbed or be agitated. In the majority of its uses in the Old Testament, it portrays trembling or shaking in response to some fearful stimulus. The psalmist is advising his enemies to tremble in fear before Yahweh and to stop sinning against Yahweh and his anointed king, whom they cannot, no matter what vain, that cannot overcome, no matter what vain words or lies they may employ. He even advises them on how to do this, go about this, that is to ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Ponder in your own hearts, or as some translations search your hearts, is an idiomatic translation of the Hebrew, which would literally mean speak to your heart, speak to your own heart. The word for heart here is not used in the typical sense as a sense of emotions, as the seat of emotions, but rather speaks of the heart being the center of deliberation and thinking and planning. It is as used in Psalm 14.1 where we read, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are to do this on their beds. We find examples of the bed being the place where meditation and reflection is accomplished such as we read David doing in Psalm 63, verses 5 through 8. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But the bed can also be a place where plots are hatched, such as in Psalm 36, which our brother, Pastor Nick, read this morning in the call to worship. Verses 1 through 4, we read, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So transgression speaks to the hearts of the wicked on their beds. In contrast here, however, the psalmist admonishes his adversaries not to be like the wicked, but to utilize the time on their beds to dialogue with themselves, to perform an inward examination, as it were, of their actions and the inevitable consequences of continuing with their current sinful course of action, especially in light of the picture of Yahweh as just painted before them as the covenant God who knows and cares for the faithful. Rather than devising new plots of rebellion and continuing to sin against the king, they would be wise to tremble in fearful silence. And rather than what we would normally expect being silent to be, that is, making no audible sound, be silent here has the sense of wailing or lamenting or mourning. David is telling his opponents to consider their sinful actions toward him and toward Yahweh and to wail in repentance and turn from them. He is telling them to do exactly what he told his enemies to do in Psalm 210, where we saw he told them, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Be wise, be warned. We see the Apostle Paul cite Psalm 4, according to the Greek version in Ephesians 4, 25 and 26, where we read, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do you see the connections? Put away falsehood, speak truth, be angry and do not sin. Here in Ephesians, Paul is addressing fellow Christians in proper behavior with one another. How is it with us? What do we do when we are mistreated, the objects of lies, disrespected, falsely accused, and we can feel temperatures rising, the heat of anger building in our spirits, maybe our faces even getting red? If you're like me, even if the anger starts out as righteous anger, to my shame, it soon degenerates into unrighteous anger and things go downhill from there. I get angry when I don't get my way. I should be striving to walk in God's way for me rather than my way. So for me to abide by Paul's exhortation, I need to not get angry in the first place because I know that if I do, all too often, it will lead to me sinning. I need to do what James exhorts us in James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
I need to do what David himself advised, advised himself and those who would seek to live righteously in Psalm 37, 7 and 8, where we read, Be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. I try to begin each day by praying to be Holy Spirit controlled rather than controlled by my flesh. I ask the Lord to help me to respond righteously rather than react wickedly in those situations that I face that could move me to become angry. But if in spite of these precautions I find myself moving toward anger, I need to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and if possible, get quietly alone with my God in prayer to help clear my head, remove the fog, calm the tempest raging in my heart, and recognize that where I'm headed is toward sin against the fellow image bearer and against my gracious God. May our God help us to live as directed by the Apostle Paul and James and the Psalmist David and by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who never once displayed unrighteous anger. Moving on to verse 5, we read, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. As David considers the call to repentance he has just given, he is hopeful for a best-case scenario. That is, that his enemies would humbly repent of their rebellious, sinful words and actions toward him and his God and demonstrate this change of heart by offering right sacrifices and putting their trust in Yahweh rather than in lies and vain plotting. In this verse, David issues to his adversaries a call to action to return to covenant faithfulness to the covenant God, Yahweh, for a change of heart. For if there has not been a change of heart, there can be no right sacrifices or sacrifices of righteousness, which are the only sacrifices that would be acceptable to the God of my righteousness, as he's, we saw in verse 1. We're probably familiar with these verses from Psalm 51, and our pastor Nick read them during the Law and Gospel time. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Our righteous God will only accept sacrifices that are offered to him from a heart that is right before him and from one who is in right relationship with him. For any who may be here today who are outside of Christ, what David has just admonished his enemies to do is exactly what you must do to be right with God and be a recipient of his faithfulness. Be warned and be wise. That is, you must repent of or turn away from your sin and your, word, your deeds of rebellion against the covenant God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You must offer sacrifices of humble submission to the Lord Jesus and put your trust in him alone and his completed work on the cross, taking your sin and paying the penalty for it by shedding his own precious blood. This is the only way that you can be righteous before the all-righteous God of the universe. And I urge you in the strongest terms to do so today. In verses 6 and 7, we see a right view of God's faithfulness. In these two verses, David contrasts his right view of the covenant of God's, God's covenant faithfulness against the wrong view expressed by the many. 
beginning in verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, Yahweh. This verse begins with an unmistakable link back to Psalm 3, verse 2, and that the Hebrew is exactly the same in the two Psalms. There are many who say, or many are saying. Although the context of the verses in the Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 here are different, in that there are many who are saying in Psalm 3, 2 are David's enemies, and here in Psalm, verses, Psalm 4, 6, there are those who are following David as their king, and also as such, brunt of the lies and the shame that is being heaped upon David, as described in verse 2. Under the weight of their present circumstances, even these who are with David are beginning to question whether David and or David's God can provide them with the good they are seeking and expecting as they attempt to follow Yahweh. Aren't we sometimes just like these friends of David when our hopes dreams and expectations don't materialize or don't materialize as fast as we want them to? Do we become confused? Why is this happening? What's going on? And begin to question ourselves, our leaders, or maybe even our God. May we not fall into this snare of the Satan, the great deceiver, but like David, as we saw in the beginning of this psalm, and as we will continue to see as we progress through it, come to our God in prayer and put our trust in him alone. We have a record of our Lord Jesus Christ doing the exact same thing in 1 Peter 2.23, where we read, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. May we strive to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. It's unfortunate in my thinking, that the translators of ESV version chose to make the the last half of verse 6 a continuation of the quote that makes up the first half. By doing so, it makes it seem that the many are asking for the light of Yahweh's face to shine upon them. Many of the other translations, such as the New American Standard, the New International, the NIV, the LEB, and the original Hebrew, and almost all the commentators that I read, confine the quote to who will show us some good, end quote, leaving the remainder of the verse as David's response to the question of the many. And I'm in agreement with these translations and these commentators. And how does David respond in the second half of the verse? As one commentator aptly put it, quote, as a true shepherd of Israel, David knew the hearts of his people. It was a time of turmoil and frustration due to unfulfilled expectations regarding the covenantal blessings. They asked, who can show us good, any good? David responded by pointing them away from himself to the Lord, the author of blessing. And how does David do that? He prays, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. He doesn't pray just any prayer, but as we saw in looking at verse 1, he recalls, the covenantal ironic blessing that Yahweh gave to Moses concerning the people of Israel, and here prays another part of that prayer from Numbers 6, 24, and 25. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. He pleads for Yahweh to be faithful to his promises and bestow his covenantal blessings upon not only himself and his friends, but the entire nation of Israel and that would even include his enemies from verse 2, and in so doing, ultimately be a blessing to all the nations of the earth 
as he had promised to Abraham of old. He's looking to the one whom he wrote of, David, in Psalm 110, where we read, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. David is obviously looking to the one we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ultimately the only one able to fill fill this promise by his person and work. In verse 7, we read, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. We see from this David's response that the many who were with him had a faulty view of the faithfulness of the law of Yahweh. They were looking for it to bring external physical prosperity, whereas David is experiencing inward joy, a joy in his heart, not derived from external circumstances. John Calvin comments on this verse in this way, The sum is that he had more satisfaction in seeing the reconciled countenance of God beaming upon him than if he had possessed garners full of corn and cellars full of wine. If we stop and think about it, how often is the mindset of the many here our mindset? Thinking it goes along the line of, What can I get from God? After all, I'm doing my best to live for him. What's in it for me? Or if I do this, which I really don't want to do, then God will do this for me. Or conversely, God won't bless me with X if I don't do Y. When we engage in this type of thinking toward our God, we are really no different than these misguided Israelites. And in fact, we are displaying the same mind as Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, or as any other false religion that does good works to placate or manipulate their little g god or gods. Ouch, when you think of it that way, that hurts. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be our mindset. If we are in Christ, we already have the greatest blessings of God, We are experiencing his faithfulness in possessing salvation and a right relationship with him. Therefore, our seeking of and worship service to our God should not be about what we can get from him, but flow out of joyful, humble gratitude toward him for what he has already graciously given us in his son, the Lord Jesus. And how unlike this faulty thinking was that of the Lord Jesus Christ when he walked this earth, If there is anyone who perfectly exemplified what we read in Psalm 40, verse 8, it was the Lord Jesus. In Psalm 40, verse 8, it says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. We hear it in Jesus' own confession in John 4, 34, where we read, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His very sustenance was to do the will of his Father, period. No hint of seeking or expecting anything in return. 
and his ultimate act of yielding to the will of his father as we read uh, read of him in the garden of gethsemane in matthew 26:39 and going a little farther he fell on his face and prayed saying my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will may we be enabled to have the same mindset as david and our lord jesus this brings us to the final verse of the chapter where we see God's faithfulness rested upon. In verse 8, we read, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. In contrast to those David has admonished in verses 4 and 5, who hopefully are wailing on their beds and confessing their sins, or those who may be wide awake persisting in wicked plotting on their beds, David is able to lie down and go to sleep in peace. His God has answered his prayer and made him a recipient of the peace that is associated with the ironic blessing in number 626 that he has prayed for throughout this psalm. By stating, I will, I will both lie down and sleep, we see demonstrated total confidence and trust in his God. He's not laying down as we see maybe in old westerns or uh, war movies with one eye open and a weapon in his hand just in case. No, he closes his eyes and easily finds sleep. Some commentators suggested that the wording here implies that David lay down and immediately went to sleep. How can he do this? With the confidence expressed in the last half of verse 8, Yahweh, his covenant God, is the only one who can make him dwell in safety, and he is going to do that for him. In conclusion, we have seen in today's psalm that King David even though being God's anointed king and having been given great promises, was subjected to shame, to humiliation, and to defaming lies. The psalm began with him crying out with inner turmoil and anxiety under the oppression heaped unjustly upon him by his detractors. We saw something similar when we looked at Psalm 3, verse 5, only under different circumstances. But in both cases, there is no hint that his enemies have stopped seeking him, or as here in this psalm, that the lies and the accusations have stopped. What's changed from the beginning of this psalm is David now possesses an inner spirit of peace. This has come about because instead of focusing on his present circumstances, he sang his lullaby to himself, in which he remembered the faithfulness of his God. Second, he rehearsed the faithfulness of his God. Third, he instructed his enemies how to become recipients of the faithfulness of his God. Fourth, he voiced a right view of the faithfulness of his God, which has allowed him lastly to rest upon the faithfulness of his God. By doing so, he is able to calmly, peacefully lay down and sleep. By following David's example, we can experience the same peace in the midst of inner turmoil brought on by unjust accusations or lying attacks we may face in our lives. David prayed, and his God answered. It can be the same for us. To the unbeliever this morning, the one who is not in Christ, the things we have talked about today should absolutely keep you wide awake on your beds at night, trembling in fear with a certain and terrible, trembling in fear of a certain and terrible final judgment awaiting you if you don't change your ways. This judgment is spoken of in describing the Lord's return in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
uh, verses 7b through 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I urge you in the strongest terms to do as the psalmist David admonished his detractors so that this would not be your fate. You have been warned of the judgment to come. Now be wise, repent of, and turn from your sin today and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from that judgment to come. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope you will take David's words in this psalm to heart and that it will be a great encouragement to you as it was for me. If you do, you should be able to, in faithful trust, sleep like a baby at night in spite of what might be going on in your life and around you in the world. In fact, we should have an even greater peace than David because of the faithfulness of our God displayed in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 tells us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Go in peace. Amen. Please pray with me. Our God, we do pray that you would help us this day, that no matter what might be going around us in the world, how we might be being accosted, that we would be those who would first go to you in prayer, that we would remember your past faithfulnesses to us, that we would plead for you to show that faithfulness again in our current circumstances, and that we would then put our faith and trust in you as the all-faithful God, that we might be those who would be able to walk in peace and sleep in peace at night. In Jesus' name we pray.